With the outcome of the general election, we find ourselves in a position unknown to this generation of political leaders, with no single party able to have a Commons majority and therefore have a majority government. Last night was a disappointment for the Liberal Democrats, even though more people voted for us than ever before. The Conservative Party gained more seats than at any election for the last 80 years. I'm incredibly proud, not only of the strong result that we achieved, but of the strong and positive campaign that we fought. It's a good delivery. It was the closest we've seen to a goal so far, and it's the big man Isaac Forser who has headed this one fractionally wide. If they're going to get a goal, they're going to have to get it in the next 20 seconds, and Montari goes for goal! What did I say? With... 15 seconds on the clock in the opening half. Africa strikes, Ghana strikes, and Sully Muntari has got the only goal of this half. It is Uruguay nil, Ghana won against all the odds. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Greatest Games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller, with me of course is Jonathan Wilson and with us is BBC Football 5 Live Match of the Day commentator Connor McNamara. Connor, pleasure to have you on the show. Hi guys, very nice to uh, very nice to join you. Very nice to have something else to do during the lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should say that we um, that we have a lot of uh, of these podcasts recorded and kind of stacked up, but we've started to record some during the lockdown, uh, as you say, Connor. So uh, wherever you may be listening to this, who knows what the news is and what the current affairs are? But but we are very much uh, remotely recording this, which is a shame not to be in your company, Connor. But anyway, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna press on no matter what. So today, Connor, we go back to the World Cup in two. 2010, the quarterfinal between Uruguay and Ghana. Uruguay, of course, won 4-2 on penalties after one all after extra time. Connor, why have you chosen this game? Um, well, when you guys first approached me about picking out a greatest game, it is it is difficult and it's funny. You know, sometimes when you, you finish a game and you think, wow, I'll never forget that. And it's funny over the, the course of time, you begin to forget little details of games and you, you might remember one particular moment, a piece of skill, or, you know, very often you remember a brilliant goal. Um, but this is a game that has always stood out for me that at the end of the commentary, I was working with John Murray, who's the BBC's football correspondent, who's a very good friend of mine. Uh, Chris Waddle was the summariser, who's one of my favourite pundits to work with. And Mark Chapman was presenting with us in the in the stadium. I remember we went for a beer later and we all looked around and we said, this is one game we are never, ever going to forget. Um, it was so dramatic. Um, and there was a little, and I'll give you a sort of small bit of background to this. Uh, you won't have to be totally Sherlock Holmes to work it out, but I'm not going to name all names involved. The other quarterfinal ended up being Brazil against Holland. And in our original schedule, the city I was supposed to be in, the game I was supposed, I was supposed to do that quarterfinal. And this is all sort of planned out in advance before we know how the games are going to work out. And then a certain colleague of mine, a more high-profile colleague of mine, pulled rank and insisted that he was going to be involved for the Brazil-Holland game. Because obviously with the way the second rounds have worked, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be Brazil-Holland. This is, this is going to be one of my best games I'll ever get to do. Um, and I got bumped off uh, Brazil-Holland and I got sent to do Uruguay-Ghana, which let's face it, on, on paper in advance, does not have the exotic tinge to it. Uh, and yet, isn't it funny how life works out that Brazil-Holland was not a memorable game, 
whereas Uruguay against Ghana was was widely accepted to be the, the most exciting match of the tournament. So you never know in football. <laughs> never judge the book by its cover. You never know what you're going to get. Yeah, Jonathan, I mean, it was an explosive end to the game, certainly, which we will get on to, of course. But it was it was one of um one of the most memorable moments in in recent sort of world cup history although it was a rare moment of real sort of drama if you like in in a tournament which wasn't that great on the field you had the great backdrop of of south africa of course but i know you're not a huge fan of this tournament yeah i mean the the, the problem when you cover a tournament and particularly a world cup when it's you know 5 weeks long is that so much of the background detail shapes how you, you feel about the, the tournament. So uh, I've, I've done four World Cups now, and this by some margin was the one I enjoyed the least. And I think part of that was I'd been looking forward to it so much. You know, I'd, I'd covered uh, at that point, I'd done, what, five Cups of Nations. Um, I mean, this Ghana team had done very well in Angola in you know, earlier in the year in, in 2010, um, you know, based around the, the, the Ghana team that had won the Under-20 World Cup the previous year. Uh, and, and so, yeah, there's an excitement about them and, and you're just the story of a tournament going to, to Africa. But actually, I ended up stuck in Rustenburg. It was freezing cold. England were terrible. Uh, you know, I was covering England, which is never a good thing to do at a tournament. <laughs> Not a concern of uh, Connors, of course. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and um, I actually saw, I ended up seeing Ghana three times in this tournament. So I saw their games in the group against, against Australia. I saw them in the last 16 against the USA. And I saw this game, and Ghana were, you know, for me the, the the best thing about the tournament. But you know, it was South Africa is a very difficult country to get around. It's not a country that's easy to relax in, uh, or certainly parts of it are not easy to relax in. And by this stage, I was totally frazzled. Um, and and so that you know, the, the sort of sense of it not quite living up to what I thought it could be, so sort of slightly in, in, infected how I felt about it. And you know, even looking back at this game, the 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 two goals that are scored, both of them are to do with the ball, and the ball absolutely ruined <laughs> the quality of football in this tournament, <laughs> as it had ruined the Cup of Nations in Angola earlier in the year, which we hadn't really realised in Angola. We just thought it was a bad tournament, but that ball, great footballers couldn't control it. Yeah, so. I, I, we had to get the negativity out of the way there, Connor. I know Jonathan has a bit yeah, of... Yeah, I've unloaded them. I'm, I'm free of it now. <laughs> it, well, it, it's funny, you know, there's, there's a thread to this. I mean, what I, I've been lucky to work at a, a similar amount of World Cups to Jonathan, and there is undoubtedly a thread of people who are encamped with England and go through what I think is is maybe similar to a hostage situation. They come out the end of it, and they very seldom have, have great things to say about the the World Cup. Um, yeah, and I totally appreciate you know, if you are a journalist, you're working in the UK. That's probably the height of your career is to get to cover England at a World Cup, and you know I'm sure they're all delighted to be there. But uh, it, it, from the outside looking in, it doesn't look like an awful lot of fun. Whereas you know I, I got to travel around the country and I got to see all the other teams in action, and you know you're commentating on a. Argentina side that had Messi and Tevez in it and you're commentating on a on a French team who were sort of imploded and there's various you know great elements and, and memories that you get from it but yeah looking back now I remember the Frank Lampard goal that was disallowed I can't really remember anything else that England did at that tournament yeah well, well there was John I, I, Terry's famous famous stand against Capello which was hilarious one of the great press conferences <laughs> but I mean we don't go to the World Cups for the press conferences let's be honest yeah, indeed, yeah. Indeed. No, I, I certainly envy you, Connor, if that's the only thing that you could remember about England. <laughs> um, but, but, but let's leave England there, uh, this tournament, uh, 
leave that well behind us. Um, what did you? How did you find uh, the World Cup in in South Africa, Connor? I mean, Jonathan, uh, been to many Cup of Nations and so on. I'm not sure if you had much previous working. No, I'd, I'd been continent. to I'd been to Africa. I'd not been to South Africa, and I haven't been since. Um, I think you know, build up to any tournament, you're you're so excited to go there, a new new place, exotic. Uh, first World Cup to be held in Africa. There was obviously loads of, of build-up to do with that. I remember my first impression of being there maybe a week, and I thought, okay, there's great natural beauty here. I thought the food was really nice. But I thought, hand on heart, I'm, I can't see myself coming here on a family holiday. I mean, all the buildings, and, and I mean all the buildings, had barbed wire on them, high fences. Uh, there was this, and I didn't see any any danger. I didn't see any violence, but there was always this tinge of, oh, well, bad things must go on here on a regular basis because everyone is lived in a, a, a little, you know, maximum security prison. Um, every shop had, had bars in the windows and it, it just had that sense of menace. And, you know, we're always told working for the BBC, we, we get sent on these safety courses before we go to events and, you know, caution and always never go around on your own and, you know, always be in a group and only ever take the, you know, don't pick up a random taxi and end up, you know, being, being kidnapped. And, and I think on that trip you definitely had to, okay i'm really i am not going out on my own i'm going with other people now but then it's funny by the end of the tournament that did soften a bit and then you're thinking oh you know i'd actually love to come back here and go to go on a wine tour you know that just such is the natural beauty of the country so yeah it was a funny there was an intimidating atmosphere at the start um and i think what didn't help in the early weeks of the tournament was the the host being knocked out i think it was the first time the hosts had ever been knocked out in the group stage hosts always go through and south africa didn't and they were actually quite unlucky i think they only lost one game but just the way the groups sort of, they, they drew the opening match. That was against France. Uh, then they, they lost to Uruguay, funny enough. Uh, and then, of course, they, they, they were beaten and, and, and they were out. And, and it almost felt a little, bit, uh, a little bit flat. You know, you always want, I remember being in Brazil 2014 and, and when Brazil went out, which was much, much later in the tournament, but you felt, oh, you know, a bit of the tournament is missing now. The hosts are out. Um, it, it definitely felt that way. And then the, the other African teams, and there were quite a lot of African teams. Remember the first first World Cup in Africa, Nigeria finished bottom of their group. They were in with a, a difficult group. They were in Argentina. They were in with the, the reigning European champions of the time, Greece. Algeria were in England's group, bottom of the group. Cameroon, bottom of the group. Uh, Ivory Coast, I think they were third in their group, but they went out in the group stage. They only had one win. They beat North Korea. So so Ghana undoubtedly were the African hope, and, and that's what... Um, made this quarterfinal so exciting and, and interesting at the time. But yeah, you, you really, as a neutral outsider, you wanted one of the African nations to, to be in it just to keep that party vibe that you always associate with World Cups where the, you know, the, so many of the locals may not have tickets to be in the stand, but they, they are engaged with the World Cup and they're having street parties afterwards. And, and that's the kind of thing you want to be involved in. As soon as the hosts go out, in, invariably that flattens. And even Ghana were actually quite fortunate to, to get through the group. You know, they... Um, Serbia-Australia game, Australia were 2-1 up with five minutes to go and Serbia should have had a penalty. And if they'd been given that and scored it, Serbia would have gone through ahead of Ghana on goals scored. So we could have had a situation where all six African teams went out in the group stage. And I, you know, I totally agree, that would have been devastating. for. I mean, not, not just for the mood around the tournament, but I just sort of think for everything that was sort of um, built up upon the, the idea of sort of you know, Africa finally being embraced by the by the world game. FIFA finally saying, yes, you can host the World Cup. If then no team had gone through, that would have left everything so so flat and so depressed. Yeah. What did, what did you make of the Ghana side, though, Jonathan? I mean, I believe you were in the Africa Cup of Nations 
uh, in Ghana two years previously. I was <laughs> actually was there myself, and there was there was a great fanfare in the country. They were a bit disappointed that they were knocked out in the semi-finals. I think it was by Egypt, but that was when Egypt seemed to win the tournament in every other year. Um, but Ghana, they had some they had some players, you know, names that we would that we would know. Suleiman Tari uh, leaps to mind, and Jan, of course, or even John Pantsel playing at Fulham, and one or two others. It was it was a decent side. It was, and um, I, mean, I suppose this relates back to what Connor said right at the beginning that you, you, your memory plays tricks on you. So, so my memory of them in in Angola was was that they were that, you know a really exciting, promising, fresh team, and I think that is true. In the, I mean, there was four of that team. So there was Sammy Incombe, who was either an attacking right back or you know in this semi final he played on the right side of midfield. There was Andre Ayew, who of course has gone on to to great things, although maybe not quite as great as as we thought he had the potential to do. Uh, Emmanuel Aguiman Badu, who, who I think was injured and so missed the World Cup, uh, and Jonathan Mensah, who was sort of a backup uh, central defender. Uh, so the four of them had all played in, in the in the team that had won the Under Twenty World Cup in in two thousand and nine. When they actually they played Uruguay in the group and drew two two, and Nicolas Ladera, who played in that game, uh, came off a bench in this semi final. So they were this young team, um, but but my memory clearly had played tricks because they, they their record in Angola. They only played two group games because Togo, you know, there'd been a terror attack and Togo went home. Uh, they they were well beaten by Cote d'Ivoire 3-1. And then they won the next three games 1-0. They, you know, they, they won the final group game 1-0. Um, and, and then, you know, they they, uh, they they beat Angola in the quarterfinal, beat Nigeria in the semi, and then end up losing 1-0 again against Egypt. So they were, they were actually, you know, a, a, a tight defensive team. Um they had Anthony Annan at the back of midfield, who was who was very important for them, and Kwadwa Samoa, uh, who was sort of a number ten in those days. You know, he got converted to a left wing back at Juve, but you know, he was a, a sort of a, a a sort of old school African playmaker back back then. And so they were, even if he didn't score the goals, they were good to watch. Uh, and Jan, I mean, Jan is such a fascinating figure that uh, you know, in two thousand eight in Ghana, when you were there, I mean, you, you'd, you'd have experienced this that he had a shocking start to the tournament. And and Ghana didn't play well, and he got an enormous amount of grief, which is so bad they end up walking out on the team. And his brother, who was also in the squad, Bafua, had to had to sort of drag him back. But he was sort of um, you know, really scapegoated for their poor start to the tournament, which is why Junior Agogo got in the team and started scoring goals and became this totally implausible sort of overnight hero, sex symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, but Asamojana had this terrible time, and then by two thousand and ten. Yeah, you know, he's the hero again, and you know he, he's the player who's scoring the, the the crucial goals in the group stage. Mm. Yeah, we've talked a lot about Ghana, and we, we will do, of course. But what about Uruguay, Connor? Um, you know, the the first time they'd reached the semi final, of course, in in a while, was in this tournament. But you look through that side. There's names that we've heard of, you know, much younger, of course, Diego Godin. You've got Diego Luganu, who was the, the captain. Muslera in, in goal, who went on to get, I don't know how many caps. You've got a 23-year-old Cavani, 23-year-old uh, Suarez, who'd scored a few goals in, in previous rounds and previous games and so on. It was a decent Uruguay side with Oscar Tabares in charge, who who they would go on, of course, the year later to win the Copa America. I mean, what did you make of them leading into this match? Yeah, I think I think Diego Forlan was the the big star. He kind of had the the blonde mane of hair. Uh, this wasn't the Forlan who who was tepid in Manchester United. This was the Forlan who was a you know goal machine in La Liga. Um, he very much he, he he led 
in this swagger, he, he did everything slowly. He took the corners and he would he would wander slowly over to take the corner. When he took a penalty in the penalty shootout, he walked up with the ball in one hand, just so casual. So I've got this, lads, don't worry. He was he was the star. I think you look now, you see Cavani, you see Suarez, you think, oh, they must have been the star. But no, they were younger players then, but they were wild dogs. I mean, that team, you, you knew they were a team. You knew if one of them accidentally committed murder, the rest of them would be out with shovels. <laughs> don't worry, we'll dig a hole, we'll bury it. No one's going to find out. You know, that was a tight crew. You know, you know what I'm saying? Those guys were not going to take prisoners. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think when I think of that side, you're absolutely right. I think of, um, who would it be? Di- Correct me if I'm wrong here, Jonathan. Diego Perez in the centre of the midfield with um, Pereira. There was a couple of Pereiras. Alvaro Pereira, I think. The two of them. I think it was Maxi who, or Maxi played in the semi final. Right, okay. There was just, Alvaro Rios, who was a younger central midfielder. I think he was in his early 20s, but he was a sort of all, he was like a Torreira, the Arsenal player now, sort of all action midfielder. Yeah, well, his nickname is Pac Man because of the way he just like, gobbled the ball <laughs> up the back of midfield. And he, he was, he was, you know, he's one of those players who you know, never gets the recognition, but everything Uruguay did well, or have done well under Tabaris, he's been there. And you take him out of that, and they lose so much because you know, his his discipline just to sit in front. And I think particularly because because they played so deep, uh, because of you know Lugano and, and then subsequently Godin lacking pace, and so they needed him to sort of sit in front of them and, and just sort of snaffle up loose balls and put in challenges like real hard nut, proper sort of old school Uruguayan footballer. Mm, yeah. All right. Well, let's have a quick break, gentlemen, and after which we'll. Uh into the game itself. See you in a moment, everybody. Diego Forlan, a crucial moment in the match for Uruguay! Goal, Forlan! Clinically struck. It's uno, uno, and it's from the right boot of Diego Forlan. Look at the bend on it again. Kingston actually went the right way, ultimately, but couldn't get there. slip away for Uruguay here at the very death of the match Mensa will be one of those up for it, it's going to get the flick in, and Muslera oh, cleared on the line and cleared on the line a second the uh, referee's assistant is fragging what a dramatic thing, there's a red card coming out as well, well there has to be drama right at the end here and the red card is shown Suarez is sent off. Well, you couldn't have a more dramatic finish to a World Cup match than this one. Welcome back to Greatest Games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. All right then, gentlemen. So it was the quarterfinal of, of the 2010 World Cup. Um, Ghana had got there in a... Uh, come out of a tricky group with, with Germany, Serbia and Australia. They'd beaten the United States. And uh, Uruguay themselves came through... Um, quite an odd group, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Connor, with France kind of imploding uh, South Africa and Mexico. And they'd beaten South Korea 2-1 in, in the previous round. So, so going into the game, Connor, w- when you were looking at those sides, did you, was, was uh, I mean, certainly my heart, and I think a lot of other neutrals were wanting Ghana to win, but who did you fancy going into this? Did you think it was fairly even or, or did you think mm, the can of Uruguayans might have them here? Yeah, I think, look, it's obviously a really long time ago. I can't remember the exact 
sort of feeling I had going in, apart from, you know, you know as, as neutral as you were, kind of wanting Ghana to go through for that African nation part. I mean, the game was played Soccer City. This was near Soweto area of Johannesburg. This, I mean, I, I, the, the location of it is quite significant. And for, you know, people in, in South Africa, the, the site where the stadium, and this is huge. I mean, this is bigger than Wembley, 95,000, I believe, is the, the sort of full capacity. I mean, they didn't, they, because of the World Cup, they needed extra space for median you know, corporate stuff. So the attendance was below 90,000. But, the, you know, that's the sort of, I mean, it was this massive stadium. It was the real symbol of the world. This is what they put all the money into. But on that, before the stadium being built, that, that area, that site was where Mandela had made his first speech when he was released from prison. Uh, there was a politician, Chris Haney, was one of these sort of outspoken anti-apartheid politicians. His funeral had been held there. So this was a deeply significant cultural site in South Africa. This was the place where, you know, if, if they wanted a showdown, if they wanted the the last African team standing to, to to get a go and to try and get into a, a semi-final. This is the location they would have wanted it to to be in. And I think, yeah, you, you would you would have thought at the time, okay, destiny is it to shine down on, on this African nation. And and what's important, you know, say this is a World Cup in Europe and all the other European teams were out and just France were sitting in or just Germany were sitting in. I don't think it'd be quite the same. I don't think everyone in Europe no. would, would then suddenly become French or German. No, no I but don't I, think so. I, I do think legitimately... <laughs> The South African locals, they, they really wanted Ghana to win. Mm. That was important, mm. that, that an African team could compete with these these other nations. So, yeah, I think the, the, the romantic story mm-hmm. was Ghana. And I think as journalist, commentator, you you, you want that romance. And, and that's not to say I didn't highly respect Uruguay. And it in itself mm-hmm. was a great story that they go through first semifinal of 40 years. But... Ghana were the team who, yeah, yeah your, your your fairy tale was was for them. Definitely, yeah. I, I, when you describe the scene like that, it makes me even sadder that it didn't happen for them. And in, in, in such, but, I mean, there's no team, there's no team less likely to sort of wilt in the face of apparent destiny yeah. than Uruguay. <laughs> I mean, I remember, um, remember when they were in that World Cup playoff against Jordan, and and I went over to to Amman and I, mm. I did various things with Jordan, and Prince Ali was there, and. There's all this sort of huge excitement in Jordan. And this sort of sense of it's it's Jordan's time. And Uruguay set off for 20 minutes and beat them 5-0. And you sort of thought, <laughs> that is the most <laughs> Uruguayan thing. Wasn't um, Harry but, Redknapp's yeah, Jordan, I mean, was it? Uh, no, it was. It was the Egyptian fellow who played in 1990, uh, uh, okay, Hassan Hassan. Yeah, yeah. um, but yeah, I, I, and clearly, I, I don't think you could be around that Ghana side uh, particularly during that World Cup, and not sort of mm. feel great warmth for them. You know, they, they. I mean, it was, it was the whole thing was totally chaotic. They, they'd had to move their training base in the first week of a tournament. They, so they'd gone to Sun City, which was this sort of uh, like shopping and casino complex quite near Rustenburg. So I went, I went to a few of their training sessions, and um, there was there was, was one day I was there with Neil Billingham, who I think he works for. ITV in the borders now. I think he's a newsreader up there, but he was working for Football Mundial at the time. And I, you know, I knew him a bit from, from various Cups of Nations. And so we're, we're standing there chatting and um, Richard Kingston, the goalkeeper, uh, he gets a whack on his calf and he comes off to ice it and he's sitting there. And we've met him in, in Angola uh, a few months earlier. So we're chatting to Richard Kingston and um, he sort of you know, realises we're, we're, we're English and says, oh, I... I'm having having terrible problems, and like, oh, right, why, why, what's going on? And he he was, I think he was playing for Wigan at the time, and he lived uh, lived in a village just outside Manchester, and he said, "Well, I'm getting married just after the World Cup, and uh, I ordered these shoes, these handmade shoes from Italy, and they say they delivered them, but they haven't turned up." 
and I'm on the phone all the time trying to sort that out. So I'm sort of thinking, well, what, what do you want me to do about it? Like, that's nothing to do with me. <laughs> and um, so I said, all right, so where where have you where have you ordered them to? And he see, he names this village near near Manchester. I can't remember what it was, but and Neil goes, all oh, right, that's that's weird. My my brother lives there. So like, ah, oh, okay. What street do you live on? Same street. Like, this is this is ridiculous. <laughs> so he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll ring my brother. And you know, he can sort of knock on a few doors, see if it's been delivered to the wrong house. So he rings his brother and says, right, I'm, I'm here. You probably know him. I'm here with, uh, with Richard Kingston, the Ghana goalkeeper. And his brother goes, oh, yeah, tell him I've got his shoes. I've delivered yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are the chances Ridiculous. of that happening? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Richard Kingston was a very interesting story because he was playing for Wigan at the time. But I look back over the, the stats and he didn't play a single game for a week in that season. He wasn't even used in cup matches. And yet here he is at the World Cup, quarterfinal, the 83rd cap that night, you know. And he played, he played well in the tournament, you know, for a guy who hadn't played club football all season. He, he made some big saves. The other weird thing about him was he had a, had a brother, uh, Lai Kingston. His, his brother's name was spelled differently. He's like the Thompson twins out of, out of Tintin. That he was Kingston <laughs> and his brother was Kingston. <laughs> Well, yeah. So, as, as loath as I am, we, we should probably move on to the match itself. Um, and and, and uh, Connor, I must ask you actually, as, as a commentator, what was it like for you being surrounded by the noise of the vuvuzelas? Did, did that well, yeah, put you off? The, the god awful vuvuzelas. <laughs> what, 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 what's interesting is I, I listened back, and I, I didn't get through it. I listened back to the first half an hour of the commentary uh, ahead of talking to you guys. What's really is all you can hear in the background is constant vuvuzela. I mean, for people who don't remember, these were these these plastic tubes which made this very loud noise. What, what's really interesting for me is in that half an hour, neither myself or John Murray or Chris Waddle, none of us make any reference to the word vuvuzela or any mention to them. And what that means is we had just become tone deaf to it. Every single game since the start of the tournament had been no other noise, no singing, no cheering, no booing, just... This, this, this horn of a vuvuzela and and you know that if you think nowadays if you're at a game in a particular noise you know that that would be mentioned in the comedy you know and, and amid the blare of the vuvuzelas you know but no we, we had just it had become it was this it's like when someone's mowing the grass in the back garden and you you, you get used to that noise because it's there all the you know and you don't notice it anymore um so they, you know they, they look undoubtedly when i arrived i think i even bought one at the airport i said like, bring that home a, a, a newborn kid who'd just been born it's like you know that'll be a present in the future i'll give them a vuvuzela this you know it felt like that. a cultural <laughs> gift oh I, I don't know they didn't even bring it home i just left it in a hotel somewhere it's like these, these are <laughs> god awful rubbish uh no i mean they they were terrible the strange thing about that is i mean i totally agree with you at, you know at the time i hated them but you know you, you very kindly sent over a clip of your comment you know the, the the audio of your commentary and so I, I listened back to some of it. And actually, it was really evocative. It sort of took me back to being there. So I think it's one of those things that, in retrospect, sounds quite good. But at the time, it was just, just awful. I, I, I don't know if it's, it's like different. For me, it's like uh, when you eat uh, – I, I personally don't like coriander. And the reason I don't like – you know, one little tiny atom of a leaf of coriander. I go, oh, that, that's, a, that's a pleasing taste. But if you put a sprinkle of coriander in your dish, all you can taste for me is, is coriander. You can't taste the other ingredients. And that's what the vuvuzela was for me. It just – it took away – I wanted to hear the African chants. And they, they had great songs, the African supporters. But you couldn't hear them. All you could hear was the vuvuzela. Yeah, I, I was a bit of a hypocrite because I, I was moaning on when I was watching it on TV – 
back in England, in England, and saying hey, it's bloody noise and everybody complaining about it. But actually, the 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 other football ramble lads and I, we we managed to get out there for the sort of latter stages. And as soon as we got there, handed a vuvuzela. Like, I was absolutely loving it. I brought a couple home, and they're loud. <laughs> like every now and then, pop outside and give it a little give it a little toot. But uh, yeah, anyway, we we let's let's go. Let's let's talk about the match itself. So the match is played, as you say, in, in uh, Soccer City in Johannesburg, and and it, and it gets underway. And and it's, I mean, Jonathan, your sort of thoughts on the first half. I can't remember too many sort of major incidents. There was a, there was a few sort of half chances and whatnot. But what did you make of the first half? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty tight. There was a, sort of a couple of headed chances. Uh, Isaac Vossa put a very good good header just wide uh, from from a corner. But it, it you know it was fairly tight. And then your first half injury time, and it was a goal that was sort of so so typical of the of a tournament that. Montari got the ball what, 35 yards out, maybe even further than that. Hits it. You know, he's not closed down, which you know, I'm sure Tabarez was furious about given Tabarez's obsession with shape. So he's not closed down. He's given the opportunity to, to have a shot. I'm not even sure he hit it that hard. But it, it just sort of, it, it, it swerves enough to, to, to wrong foot Muslera and it just sort of bounces in the corner. And so, you know, normally you'd think, you know, 35 yard strike, brilliant. In context, a 35-yard strike that showed the the failure of the ball. Yeah, well, a 35-yard strike from Montari as well, who could hit them, of course. But Connor, I mean, that was it gave us something, didn't it? Just before half time, and you think, oh, hang on a minute, the the narrative is unfolding right here. You, you you know, being commentating on that game, you were you you must have started thinking, my goodness, are, are we going to witness the first African side ever to reach a World Cup semi final? Yeah, goals before halftime are are always good news. I think you know, in a game commenting nil nil, you you know it's going to be a flat enough discussion at halftime if it if it is scoreless. But you you get that late goal, then suddenly everything changes. Right, Uruguay now need to adapt, uh, adjust their tactics. Do do Ghana feel one nil is enough? Can they defend? You know, it really gives you a narrative to discuss. Montari had been an interesting one. He was he was with Inter Milan at the time. He had he had been at Portsmouth before that, and it was actually his first start of the tournament because he had, he'd been excluded from the team and he had a row with the coach. I don't know what it was all about, but something to, you know, they, they had a clash of personalities and the coach said, well, I'm the coach, you're out, you know, and it wasn't quite Roy Keane in Saipan. He wasn't sent home, but he, he was, he was, you know, a peripheral member and he only came back. Well, he'd been, he'd been was... dropped from the couple of nations. He wasn't in the couple of nations squad. And the, mm. the reason was there was three of them who got dropped because they didn't turn up for a friendly and Ryavach for coach said, Right, we we've just won the under twenty World Cup. I'd rather promote these kids than have senior players who can't be bothered to turn for friendlies. So that that was the friction between them. Mm. And and Montari anyway starts in this game first start of the tournament. So for him to score the goal, felt oh you know maybe this is the extra element that they've been missing. This is this is going to be the difference that'll get them into the semi final. I mean, this guy had just won the Champions League, I believe, that year with with Inter. I think they won Serie A as well. You know, so he he was he was a star player who hadn't been involved. And then comes in and scores that goal, and you feel right. What is Oscar Tabares, this this Uruguay coach, going to do? I mean, Tabares, he if you were if you were casting him in a movie, I think it would have to be a sort of a cop movie. You'd have the two renegade sort of cops who don't obey the rules, and they'd be Suarez and Cavani, or Suarez and 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 Forlan. And then Tabares would be the sort of long suffering chief of police who you know he, he's really tough on them. And he doesn't let them away with much, but but it's because he loves them. You know, he doesn't want them to get get hurt out in the field. But you know, disciplinarian, but with this soft side that he does. So he he'd got that that you know concerned, worried expression on his face going to the dressing room. Okay, I've got this team of stars. You know, Ghana, right? They've got the African connection, but really, you know, this is a team you'd, you'd feel confident 
before the tournament. If we got them in the quarters, we would expect to beat them. We would expect to go through. And yet he was 1-0 down. So that Montari goal had changed. And now suddenly this was roll up your sleeve stuff for Uruguay. And a bit like I've been watching the early stages of this um, Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. And I think quarterfinals in general, they've got a bit of that last dance about it. I think any team that gets further than a quarterfinal, they never get slated. They never had a disastrous tournament. You know, they, they gave it a really good go. Whereas if you, so that it's a pivotal moment. You know, if you go, if Uruguay were knocked down in that quarterfinal, they would have gone home saying, right, you've underperformed at this tournament. Once you win that game, then anything is a lottery from then on. No one's going to criticize you too much. So it had that last dance feel about it. We are one nil down. We are in the home of African football here. We're against an African team. We need something special here. We have got to basically gloves are off, which I think was, became the mentality that led to the big climax of this game. Yeah, I think with uh, I completely agree with regards to what you're saying about teams getting to the semi-final, with the obvious exception of Brazil in 2014. Yes, <laughs> but, yes. Uh, but but you know, with the, with the kind of cop analogy, I mean, Diego Forlans is in among those players, maybe a slight Serpico kind of vibe about him. Yes, and of course, he's he's the man who a bit more clean living than the others, perhaps. But he he's the man who, who's, as you say, the player of the tournament. He would be um, crowned, of course, at the end of it. He's the man that gets the goal. And again, Jonathan, you're looking at that Jabulani football, the way he hits that free kick, it, it moves around a little mm. bit and you'd be looking at the goalkeeper a bit. But again, the ball had uh, made its mark on the game. Well, I think in normal circumstances, you'd be looking at the keeper. I think in this tournament, you just have to accept. I mean, I, I think what was what you, what you realised was within sort of... After sort of two or three games, the better players had worked out how to strike the ball, and it wasn't you know it wasn't about trying to hit it hard. It was about getting it on target, and it might wobble about. Uh, so um, Keisuke Honda scored those two goals um, against Denmark for Japan, very similar of just sort of putting the ball there or thereabouts and waiting for the ball to do something, and that, that was what this was. You know, free kick out on the left, and he he sort of yeah. You know, bends it over the wall or, or clips it over the wall and it seems to be curving into the near post and suddenly it straightens up and Kingston you know, can't get back and you know, ends up going going around the top corner and looks like this very pure strike. But I don't think there's any way a, a, a player, not even you know, even a player of Forland's class, could judge that. He was just putting the ball towards that, that side of the goal and relying on it to wobble enough to, to, to defeat Kingston. Mm. So it's one all um, and the second half kind of trundles on and from my recollection Connor and sort of looking back on it it felt like it certainly felt again this is my heart talking probably but it felt like Ghana were getting a little bit of the better of it although there was a good save from a Luis Suarez shot but it was was, was I'm sure the feeling in the stadium would have been a lot of the the local support and obviously the Ghanaian support almost sort of trying to suck that ball into the back of the net yeah, I, I think you know. Trying to remember back to the game, definitely there was a feeling that Ghana could have could have nicked it. They had had a few chances, and then you know, yet right at the end, I remember there was you know the, the free kick that led to the the sort of real drama was Uruguay were proper eleven men back behind the ball at this stage. Uh, Sebastian Abreu had come on; he was the the, the centre forward, and and he was brought back to defend. We mentioned that in the commentary you know, that his height in defence was going to be. Here. So it wasn't the case of Uruguay. You know, let, let, let's leave a player up uh, while they push forward for a free kick. We might nick it. I, they, they were backs to the wall at that stage. They they were thinking our best outcome from here is penalty shootout rather than uh, trying to trying to win this game before spot kicks. But you know, look, it is a long time ago, so I'm, I'm struggling to remember the exact yeah, detail yeah. on that. I, I think Kevin Prince Bartang may have had a header which he put just wide, Jonathan. 
and it, it was it was a decent chance. But as as Connor said, you know, as the game went on, it got sort of deeper into and then into extra time, of course, and, and so on. It did feel like I think I remember watching it thinking I think Ghana might they could nick this. I didn't think that there was too much danger of, of Uruguay scoring. Yeah, I mean, I think Abu coming on was was Tabar. I mean, was Tabar sort of saying this is going to penalties because Abu is a, a penalty specialist. Um, you know, he scored a series of, of crucial penalties in, in shootouts. That's that's what he's really good at. Um, so, you know, I, I think that substitution was made with 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 the shootout in mind. But yeah, th- those last three or four minutes, from from memory, was was pretty much all Ghana. Uh, and they, they they'd had a couple of corners, and then they get the key free kick, and that you know again, I, your memory sort of tricks you with this. I, I sort of you know, my my memory of it was oh the ball comes in there's a header it's punched off the line, but actually it's a lot lot more complicated than that. Yeah, there's yeah. a whole load yeah. goes on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, even looking back on it, Connor, I mean, Ghana, they they might have scored before the header and then the handball. There was a shot that was that was cleared off the line. There was a scramble. And again, if you're Ghanaian and you watch that back, you know, you well, I don't know if you even could because the handball may have been completely irrelevant and the, and the penalty because there was a chance to put the ball in the back of the net and it wasn't taken. Well, and this, I think the, the you know, when you talk about the, the famous handball incident is that there there's a double save and the first time it's blocked legitimately. I think this is important. You know, it's not that... It's not that this is blatantly just breaking the rules for the sake of it. I mean, the first one was, yeah, we, we can keep it out with a head. Second one, no, a head isn't going to do this time. A hand is going to have to be used. And and it was that, you know, by any means necessary, what can be done? And and, and I think, you know, it's, it, it, I'd actually forgotten about in the build-up, you know, the, the whole thing with the ball, and Jonathan describes it so well. I think it added this element of everything's a bit up for grabs here. Everything is, you know, you just get it in the mixer, Anything could happen because this ball is such a random thing, and I think I think you know the Frank Lampard goal for England gets a lot of talk. There was there had also been a sort of injustice goal because uh, I commentated on the game when Argentina beat Mexico and Tevez was way offside for no, it was nil nil. Tevez scored, Messi prodded onto him. He was way offside, and I remember in the stadium they actually put the replay up on the big screen so everyone could see in the stadium. And there's no doubt. I mean that tournament was the was the 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 the, the catalyst that, that set in motion what led to, to video assistant refereeing and video technology being used because people felt these were the big injustices. But but also nothing was being done about the injustice. You know, it, you would get through even if there was an injustice, which I think is in the background of the the narrative here where okay, we'll try, we'll stretch, we'll do everything you to keep the ball out fairly, but if it's a case that you can't keep it out fairly, your decision is, well, do you concede the goal or do you do you you know, commit a crime against football if you like. Do, do you do you do you take the law into your own hand? Do you risk suspension not just for a semi final, but maybe a two match ban that would get you into the final? You know, how far are you willing to go? And that question was never going to be dwelt upon too long by Suarez. I mean, it's by all means that whatever has to be done, I'm going to do it. And it wasn't just Suarez. I mean, Fusile tried to handle it in front of him. Fusile missed it, which allowed Suarez <laughs> to make the save. But it had been Suarez who blocked Stephen Appiah's shot. And you, know, you, yeah. you think of what might have been, okay, you, you think of uh, Dominic Adaya, you know, this kid who's come off the bench, and obviously it would have been great for him. But if Stephen Appiah had scored the goal, that, that's the fairy story. I mean, yeah. he was only 29, but he had the body of a 49-year-old. You know, he'd, he'd been broken <laughs> did, by football. Yeah. Um, I'm not even sure if he'd actually been in the squad at the Cup of Nations because uh, he, you know, he just had these horrific knee injuries over and over again. And what a, what a wonderful footballer he had been before the injuries. And if it had been him who got who got the winner, 
that would have felt, inc- you know, that would have been the perfect finale to that game. But you know, his shots blocked, and then there's a header, and then there's the, the two attempts at handling it, the second of which works. Yeah, of course, and and we really, if if people didn't know much about Luis Suarez before that game or even before the tournament, we we certainly found out. I mean, he, he of course he handles it. The red card is produced, and the surprised look on his face is wonderful. And of course, off he goes, and he's he's in tears. And then Jean steps up to take the penalty. And and looking back at the game, Connor, there's a couple of the Ghanaian players who are properly like almost like really celebrating when the, the red yeah. cards given, the penalties given. They thought, yes, here we go. And you can understand that, of course. And up steps Jean, their main man, and of course, hits the hits the top of the crossbar. Yeah, I mean afterwards. Suarez claims he said it was the save of the tournament. Said, <laughs> the quote is a brilliant quote. He said, the hand of God belongs to me now. Mine is the real hand of God. I mean, he, he took it as, as pride. So I remember, so our commentary position was behind the tunnel. Uh, the goal where all this was happening was to the right-hand side. Suarez gets sent off. And as happens at these big tournaments, there's various people to kind of usher you away. You know, once you've left the pitch, they don't want you hanging around. They don't want you being, you know, you're gone now down the tunnel. And he's been ushered down by, by a member of FIFA staff, but he lingers. He doesn't go and he stays at the mouth of the tunnel and he looks back. He's in tears, Suarez. He's been sent off. Jan has got a penalty. This is 120 minutes into the game. This is, you know, the, we, we had played the full amount of stoppage time before the penalty had been awarded. It, it legitimately was to be the last kick of the game. If Jan scores, Uruguay are out and the penalty would have been given away by Suarez. And okay, he'll say what well, it was going in anyway. But the bottom line, I've been sent off. I've given away a penalty and we're going out of the World Cup. He lingers. The guy is literally pulling his arm, but he's stretching, straining his neck back that he can see it. Jean runs up to hit the penalty, hits the crossbar and Suarez, there's no tears anymore. Celebration, clench fist. He runs down the tunnel then. It was all worth it. The end had justified the means because if he hadn't handled the ball, Uruguay were out. He had handled it. They were still in. And you just knew, Jonathan, that Uruguay were going to win on penalties when that happened. But when, because uh, Forlan, I think, took the first one and scores. Jean, to be fair to him, steps up yeah. and takes the first uh, I, penalty. I very him. rarely wanted anybody to score a penalty as much yeah. as I wanted Jan to score that. Having seen what he'd gone through two years earlier, uh, you know, the, the thought of him missing, you know, two penalties in what, like five minutes, 10 minutes? In a World Cup quarter final, I you know I was I was delighted for him that he he scored that. Yeah, that was a good a fair play to him. You know, I think he put it top corner. And also, it. he he I, I was expecting at the time, and I think I said in the commentary, you expect this kind of redemption celebration. Think Stuart Pearce when he scored at, at Euro '96. You know, this okay, I have missed an important penalty for my country, but now I've scored one. You know, clenched fist, red face. It wasn't. It was this almost polite applause from Jean, almost an apology of a cell. Okay. I hope I've made some amends here. I know it doesn't completely rectify, but I mean, these are the worst circumstances. I mean, nobody wants to be involved in a penalty shootout, knockout stages of a World Cup, but this is the worst circumstance when you've been given a penalty to win the game and you've missed that penalty. So you're not feeling altogether happy about penalties. Forland comes up, I mentioned before, you know, juggling the ball in one hand. He's like playing with his kids in the back garden, no problem, slots at home. And Jan walks up first for Gat. I mean, I mean, if he'd missed that, you know, it's all over there and then. But he, 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 Puts it in the top corner. He did with the second penalty what he meant to do the first time, and then and 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 on it went from there. Yeah, I've, I mean, yeah, I mean, 
Garner had to go through for him to feel any sort of redemption, of course. And, and as the penalty shootout would go on, Maslera became the hero despite uh, Garner, uh, a Uruguayan penalty being skied over the, the crossbar. And, and when Uruguay went through, of course, uh, Abreu, as um, he, his name was mentioned before, Jonathan, he steps up to take the winning penalty. And he's just, so I'm really sorry to oh, interrupt, yes. but we, you no, no. cannot skip in the narrative the very important John Mensa penalty. John Mensa, the Sunderland oh, defender, course, yes. who, you know, when you play five aside football and you're awarded a penalty, the, the, the thing to make it fair, you can't just blast it past the goalkeeper. You can only take one step, which makes it more difficult to get part. You know, you, that is a rule of five aside football. He decided in a World Cup quarterfinal penalty <laughs> shootout, why why would you take a few steps to run up? Why not just take a one-step penalty? It it was a terrible kick. Muslera saves it, and that's what gave the the advantage to Uruguay. But then, of course, Maxi Pereira blazes over the top. Now, you've got to remember as well, I'm sitting beside Chris Waddle here, who who knows a little bit more about most about blazing penalties over the top in, in World Cup knockout games. So that felt very significant as well. And this, you know, th- th- these were all the little moments. You put them all together and you realize what a dramatic game that this was. But the, yeah, the, the John Mensa pathetic penalty. I mean, for me, <laughs> you know, Jean did his best, you know. And although th- there is one thing about this, I always think if your penalty is wide or hits the crossbar, that must feel worse than if it's saved. At least you say if it's saved. Look, I hit it on target. I did my bit. The yeah, goalkeeper yeah. chose the right side. He was talking. If you don't hit the target, if it's wide, if it's hit the crossbar, I think that's what must really hurt the player who's missed the penalty because you feel, God, you know, just do, the, you've one job here. Hit the bloody thing on target. And if you don't hit the target, you know, from 12 yards, that must eat you up inside. But the thing with John Mensah, he's such a huge bloke. You know, a real sort of bull of a man. You know, this centre-back... <laughs> you know, just full of muscle. Just smack the thing. Yeah. Like even if you smack it straight down the middle, it only has to, you know, it's a javelani, it's gonna wobble. It only has to yeah. wobble eighteen inches and it's in because you can hit yeah. he can hit the ball so hard. So this little stabby side foot. Yeah. And just, then and why, in the context why would you do of that this, as a centre back? Yeah, and in the context of this, having seen this 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 you know fancy penalty, if you like, this this one touch pen one step penalty fail for then Sebastian Abreu to step forward, tall, muscly long hair, South American Adonis, puts the ball down and you're expecting, right, here comes hot shot Hamish. He is going to lift the net off the back of the, off the ground. He runs up. That This was the year where Jan Kermagant had fluffed a Penenka for Leicester, remember? But he runs up and he just dinks it. He does the most cheeky Penenka dink. Goalkeeper cho- chooses a side and dives and it floats over and in. And to have done that, to have the balls to do that after what had happened with, with, uh, with, with the penalty before it met John Mensah's attempt. I think that, that was, that was audacious. I mean, I mean, that it was, really took but, my breath away. But that, that is what Abreu always did. That was his it penalty. It was his trademark. So penalty, I, it? yeah, I think I might be wrong about this, but I think in the quarterfinal of a, of a Cup America, the following year against Argentina in Argentina, I think he took the same penalty then. And I guess this is sort of just long enough ago that goalkeepers didn't have. I mean, I know Lehman in two thousand six had his had his his yeah, bit of hotel notepaper with with the instructions of where everybody was going to put them. But I think this is before you know that was taken hugely seriously because I, I think now goalkeepers would be told to stand still because that's what he does. But you're right in the context, it felt like the I mean, like the most audacious penalty since Penenka. No, it did, it did, it did. And what I feel is you know even if the 
goalkeeper knew that even look, we're all second guessing here but even if he knew right this guy likes Penencas I still think you would think okay Mensa has just tried this silly yeah. short run up and fluffed yeah, 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 yeah. it this is a kick to win he, he's not going to do the Penenka here you know he is going to put you know <laughs> I'm going to pick a corner this is not he would never be brave enough he's going to sky it over the crossbar if he tries um, it, it just you know you listen to the comment, um, the way we do uh, the commentaries in the radio those, those big games we've got two commentators is we each take a team so John Murray my colleague was commentating on the Uruguay penalties and I was commentating on the, the Ghana penalty. Now, one of the big rules, are, are both our microphones are open. Uh, one of the big rules of commentary is, you know, you don't shout over someone else's big moment. And there's obviously been a few famous examples over the years where a, a summarizer goes, ah, gets all excited in the background of, uh, of a big moment. And the commentator hates that because, no, no, you're supposed to be listening to my word. This is my big moment. But when that go- when when, um, when when the Penenka is hit by, by a Brea, you can hear me in the back. I'm just going, no, no way. You know? <laughs> Which uh, it, it just that that is not what was expected. It was it was just one of those moments where you feel somebody somewhere is sitting in their car and they've they've arrived home 25 minutes ago. Their wife is inside. The dinner is going cold or it's burning in the oven. They should have left their car, but they cannot turn the radio off. They cannot go into the house because they are glued to this. And it was one of those moments you feel, wow, what a finale then to this this thrilling intrigue. It was, and it felt like it was almost, it couldn't have been more disrespectful <laughs> to the narrative yeah. that we all wanted and and, and, the, and the sort of Africa's hope in, in this Ghana f- football team to reach that semi-final because, as you say, had they have reached the semi-final, they would have, you know, you're in, a, in with a fighting chance. It would have been unlikely if they'd have beaten the Netherlands, but you're in a fighting chance to reach the final. You know, people could really dream and really remember, but they were, they were, Stopped short and, of that through Lewis Suarez's handball. Important. Then, then what happens is is the celebrations. So, having been sent off to the dressing room, Lewis Suarez is out, and not only is he sort of sheepishly, you know, I'm thinking of Roy Keane in the '99 semi final where he, he scored the goal against Juventus, but he now he knows he won't play in the final, and the reality of that is kind of coming in. Suarez is being lifted up on the shoulders of teammates. I mean, it is—it is the adoration. This was this was the plan all along. This has worked out. Uh, you are the hero. This is the guy who's been sent off, and and that you know. So you multiply the Penenka penalty, multiplied the scenario of Suarez's cheek, and poor Ghanaians who and they didn't leave. They stayed out on the pitch as well. You know, this it's like has this actually happened? It was you know the beaten team often leaves and the fans leave and you get one half of a stadium celebrating. The Ghanaians all stayed out of the pitch for a long, long time afterwards. They were shell shocked. They looked like they'd seen a ghost and 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 yeah, carried literally up on the shoulders of his teammates, like like Pele having won the World Cup or Bobby Moore is the better example actually. Like Bobby Moore, that's what it was. It was Bobby Moore up on the shoulders, except in Suarez. For, and what are they celebrating? The fact he was sent off and gave yeah, a penalty. I, it, I mean. It, it was offensive. I'd go as far to say it was offensive. <laughs> oh, but but um, it's it's why we love football because you have these these incredible moments. Um, Connor, it's been it's been a pleasure unpacking no, thank that you, one guys. with you. Really good. Yeah, really, really good. Yeah. Well, for more stories like that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, do check out um, theblizzard.co.uk. But yeah, poor old Garner. Oh, dearie me. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to have a pick-me-up after that. Um, But, Connor, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Jonathan, as always. And thank you, everybody, for listening uh, to Greatest Games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. We'll see you next week. They all stand arms around one another. It is a It's the cheekiest chip you've ever seen. And it's good enough to take the South Americans into the semi-finals of the World Cup. 
African hearts are finally broken in 2010. There will be no African team in the last four. This was a Stakhanov production.